Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Michael DeRedita. Before becoming the director of the Keenan Center for Entrepreneurship, Innovation and Creativity at Lemoyne College, he earned a PhD in Cognitive and Experimental Psychology from Syracuse University. He spent 17 years at the iSchool at Syracuse, the last 10 of which included co-founding and growing the program in information technology, design, and startups. Michael is also a serial entrepreneur who has founded four companies, including Coffeehouse CXO, and has coached international rowing for the Finland, Guatemala, and Portugal national rowing teams. All right. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Uh, Phil and I are excited to speak with you. you know, learn some uh, valuable lessons from you and share them with our audience. So great to be here. Yeah. So on your Twitter uh, homepage, uh, you quote T.E. Lawrence and you say that all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake up in the day to find it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. Uh, what a great quote. Uh, tell us what speaks to you most about that quote. Well, I think it's the, the, the dreamers of the day, right? Um, I like the balance between uh, the visionary going for, for big audacious goals, uh, but at the same time having their feet on the ground uh, in terms of knowing what's possible. And uh, that's the day-to-day grind that I think a lot of people miss. Uh, especially when it comes to specifically high performers uh, and and what starts to separate them out. So it's it's I think it's a quote that that balances the boat balances them both out nicely. So I've used it often uh, as sort of you know a mantra of sorts. Yeah, and obviously your your first kind of insight into the world of high performance was through your own rowing and then coaching rowing, which is how we kind of got connected through our. For our friend uh, Joe DeLeo. So could you talk to us a little bit about um, that stage of your life and, and maybe how that led to you becoming fascinated about high performance in business and in learning and in all these other spheres that you've now excelled in? Sure. So, uh, so my path actually was less staged and I'd call it more parallel. So, um, and, and here's what I mean by that. You know, as I was getting my doctorate and studying um, essentially high performance, it was it was automaticity at the time as uh, what, what we called it. Uh, but it pulled in a whole bunch of uh, topics on high performers and, you know, all the elements um, associated with that. And always had a fascination with that, of course, because of because of rowing and sport. Um, 
But in parallel, I was also coaching uh, the sport of rowing, uh, as well as uh, doing some things with some not-for-profits, starting rowing clubs, and doing uh, things on the entrepreneurial side as well. So uh, let's say I, all three of them um, were, were were passions of mine, all three pathways. And so uh, that that's how it that's how uh, I always thought that someday I'm going to reduce that down to something a little bit more <laughs> focused uh, and and pick one. Uh, but that has not really happened. Maybe it's dropped a little less academic to the other two lanes of high-performance sport uh, and uh, entrepreneurship. So, so what happened is I, you know, ended up going getting my doctorate. Soon after my doctorate, I ended up, um, and during that whole decade, I was coaching a lot. I was coaching at all different levels here in the U.S., including what they call pre-elite development type athletes for for national teams and. Uh, things like that. So it was, it was great. And I was also coaching at Syracuse university as a uh, graduate assistant. And, and so I always had my, my hands in it. Uh, And then in, in 2000, I was lucky enough and got the opportunity to go over to Finland and that started my international uh, coaching career. Uh, And that's basically where I'd stayed for about 20 years uh, since it was Finland. Then I ended up in Portugal. Then I spent some time in Mala and then I ended up most recently uh, back in Portugal. And in parallel to all that, um, I was, you know, an entrepreneur as well. So started a number of businesses, uh, started an entire entrepreneurial program at Syracuse University, now at Lemoyne College, um, all focused on, you know, helping people mind, in a mindset way, uh, trying to, to coach them up uh, to a high performance mindset, whether it be entrepreneurship or, or on the water. And that's that's probably the thread that runs through all of it. Yeah. Phil, Phil and I love to talk about confidence and concentration and composure and commitment, competitiveness, character, a lot of C words. Um, what, what are some of the, you know, in terms of entrepreneurs, what are some of the, uh, the main opponents, uh, internal opponents? Um, uh, usually with athletes, we see a lot with doubt uh, before a big competition and then also dealing with fear. So I'd uh, like to hear your thoughts on that. It's very similar. Uh, And, you know, I I really, people talk about changing hats. I, I don't really have to change hats uh, as I, as I talk to the the different types of individuals. And it probably goes back to that quote that you talked about, right? They have this characteristic of being able to dream uh, and they're both doing so with their eyes open. And, um, you know, the, the novice entrepreneur, I think um, is, is hurt a little bit more by naivete uh, than anything else, but no different than a, a rookie athlete. Uh, they've got to get out there and try it and and say, oh, that's what it feels like to get hurt. Now I understand uh, or get hit or whatever sport or, oh, now I know what it means to go flat out for six minutes. Wow, that hurts. Um, you know, how do I start to prepare for this? And and so you, you coach them through uh, the practice of it uh, and the process. And I think a big part of that is knowing where they are in their development, right? And, and knowing what's the next stage, what does coaching up mean uh, to, for this individual uh, specifically uh, as, you, as you move through that. So, so entrepreneurs are very similar um, uh, to athletes. And, you know, last thing I'll say about that is a lot of the educational stuff I've done at, at Syracuse uh, and at Lemoyne has been very hands-on. We launch businesses. These these students are launching businesses and we're quite adamant about it. 
uh, that, you know, the way you do this, uh, the way you learn this is by doing it. Uh, no different than an instrument uh, or sport. You've got to get on the field. Uh, otherwise, there's just no context. So the depth of learning is uh, it needs to be there. And that, that's there through activity uh, behavior. Right. Uh, because then what happens, of course, is the emotional components come into this. The motivational components come into this. All of the self-reflective components come into this. You, you can't teach that through case studies or, or in a classroom. They've, they've really got to experience it. It's a visceral thing, right? That's that, that element of it is, is important. Probably I'm a little biased. I think it's the most important. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it goes, it harkens back to Mike Tyson's quote about everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And, you know, if you have, yeah, if you have big dreams and goals, you're going to get punched in the face a lot. And, and, um, and adversity is going to strike. So, you know, that's when we learn most about ourselves and, and most about what we need to change and how we're going to develop. 100%. In fact, even in the startup world, you know, this notion that you write a business plan before you launch your business. Well, no, not really. Not on the startup side. Uh, for the reason you just said, that you just don't know. Uh, you don't know what you don't know. And you've just got to start moving forward through some trial and error. There's some process and method to it. Uh, but you move forward and make sure you have good coaches and mentors around you uh, to improve the probability of success, you know? Yeah, I love that. You got to, you know, kind of be left brain in terms of thinking it through, but then you also have to be right brain in terms of feeling it out as you're moving forward. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Which is where a lot of the coaching comes in. I think even in high performance sports, same as entrepreneurship, the community means so much. Uh, in the context uh, of, that the athlete or the entrepreneur is in uh, means so much uh, because, you know, they're one element of that community. And so they're absorbing all of those lessons learned and all of those things start to improve their probability of success in whether it be a marketplace or a, a high performance sports setting um, in, a, in a relatively heartless arena. Right. Uh, there's it's you, you're you're going to perform or you're not. And uh, that marketplace or that competition uh, doesn't care much about your story uh, in, in that regard. It's it, you really need to be prepared. So it's that community that potentially starts to give you those unfair advantages that you need uh, to compete and, and make it and, and step out. Right. Stand out. Speaking of stories, um, I recently, well, I'm actually in the process of rereading it, The Soul of an Entrepreneur by David Sachs, who's, you mentioned case studies, kind of the king of good case studies, as he showed, you know, in, in his earlier books, like The Revenge of Analog, where he talks about kind of the comeback of vinyl and Molsky notebooks and this kind of thing. And really what he's focusing on there is the lifestyle entrepreneur, um, the true small business owner that may want to grow a business, but keep it small, you know, at a certain yeah. point. And he claims that that's, you know, probably 90 something percent of entrepreneurs. But yet yeah. we have these mega outlier success stories of a Zuckerberg or an Elon Musk. And they kind of um, almost create like the cheesy sports movie narrative around startups and VC funding and all of this. Um, and, and the two guys that he opens, they're, they're basically um, similar to your students, you know, two guys at, at Stanford, I believe, that are starting a business while still in school, but they kind of roll their eyes while he's watching them at, a, at this lady who comes in who's very successful and is, you know, the 20 under 20 and then 30 under 30. And they said, oh, I wish that there would just be more 
stories about setbacks and stories about failures rather than these neatly tied off or even cliched stories of success that almost every presenter they've seen at Stanford um, comes in and tells. So how are you able to weave in just the real harsh realities of like with rowing, like Joe once told me a 2K test on an erg is never not going to suck. (laughs) Right. <laughs> even for an experienced rower now they may That's be right. rowing a 550 while you're struggling to get below seven minutes but you know the pain's going to be the same so where does where, where does pain suffering setback failure come into the, the 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 storytelling that you try to pass on to these students yeah it's Again, that's the that's the visceral side. So, um, you know, I've done I've been doing executive coaching for 20 years as well with with executives, not necessarily in high performance or excuse me, in high growth companies. Um, But so so I you know, they have to experience it. Right. It's very hard uh, to talk. Um, I kind of liken it to to parenting a little bit. You can talk about what it's like to have a kid. So you have a kid. Like, oh, oh, got it. Um, and everyone's, and then even then everyone's situation is a little bit, a little bit different, right? Some things relate, some things don't. And so you, it's one of those, one of those things in life that you absolutely have to experience. And I think what, what you're talking a little bit about, I, I frame that as a, um, a survivor bias, right? Um, and, and so what you hear about are these stories of all these survivors, and, and those are the ones that have made it through and, and succeeded. And there's such a small percentage um, of the ones that have actually tried, uh, especially at the, at the highest of levels. So whether it's a high growth company that becomes the unicorn and hits the IPO and, and really, you know, uh, rockets to the moon, uh, which is a, a frac- fraction of percentages of percentages uh, in terms of, of how many companies do that, uh, or the high performance athlete, uh, whether they be make it to the pros or whether they make it to the Olympics, you know, they're fractions of fractions of all those uh, that are potentially trying. So, uh, and it's always been a pet peeve of mine, actually, because um, some of these things can be a little misleading, right? Um, quite honestly, uh, people like to use the word balance and health and all these. Sometimes it's not so balanced uh, at the highest levels of performance, right? These there's an there's a, an obsession. Uh, there's a potentially, you know, for at least even in a shorter amount of time, a relative imbalance, right? Where, where someone is just so uh, committed and focused on performing uh, at that, at that level. Uh, it doesn't mean it's necessarily unhealthy, though it can get unhealthy. Uh, and I think that's where the, the coaches come in recognizing how high of a level it is, what actually needs to happen, because really, what are you doing? You're, you're morphing your mind uh, and body uh, in the sports side, uh, to perform, uh, at this level as everyone else is, uh, but you need to last because it takes time. And so that's where the balance, you know, or that's where the, the, the counterbalancing of making sure that the lifestyle is healthy, that the athlete is healthy. Um, and also making sure that, you know, go speaking to this point of uh, survivor bias, you're helping the athlete in a, what I often like to say, you're helping the athlete determine, you know, what's signal and what's noise. And, and that can be really hard, uh, especially now, because there's just so much noise uh, out there from all these different channels and helping them understand uh, what that is and the differences between signal and noise uh, as they move on. And it's actually one of my metrics um, for recognizing, you know, where someone is in the process and it's, it's their ability to tune in 
to the signal and, and really ignore the noise. That, and that takes time. It takes a lot of practice to just emotionally uh, be able to do that and perform. Yep. Well, there's definitely a lot of noise on the inside and on the outside. And Absolutely. So Correct. Um, Correct. The, the yeah. self-reflect, like what's noise in here? What's noise out there? What's, you know, all of that. It, and it takes time, right? It's time to get to the level, learning how to train, learning how to perform, learning how to be there. And then learning how to win is a whole nother, uh, you know, these are all stages and phases that these, these people need to go through. It's similar to entrepreneurship. You don't just launch and you're successful. Generally, there's three or four failures, maybe more. Uh, they're, you know, they're learning through this process uh, and just getting better and better at it. And so, you know, businesses fail. Entrepreneurs are a little bit different. That's a different metric uh, in measurement. And it's the same with athletes. Athletes fail, uh, but athletes eventually uh, succeed depending on, you know, some of these other characteristics of character, fortitude, grit, desire, you know, all these elements that, that come into it is all speaking towards longevity. They stay in it long enough to, to get there, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like the old classic Michael Jordan commercials. You know, there were, there were two, the, the one was um, tell me I'm older, tell me I'm slower, tell me I can no longer fly. Right. I want you to. And then it's him dunking from the free throw line at age, you know, 36, 37. And then sure. the companion one was how many times he'd been trusted to take the game, potentially game tying or the game winning shot and missed how many thousand shots he'd missed in his career, that kind of thing. And, you know, it was that one golden moment, kind of like those two or three golden Apple commercials from back in the day that just hit exactly the right beat, but they're yeah. memorable. And, you know, somebody might say, oh, that's cliche, but I mean, even Steph Curry misses, you know, more than half of the three-pointers he takes. Like a good three-point shooter in the NBA is only making, you know, four out of four out of ten. And, uh, you know, we once had an architect tell us that his firm wins less than, that they're batting about 180. Uh, but, you know, they so they lose more than eight out of every ten, almost nine out of every ten deals that they bid on or projects they bid on. And he said, well, if I was a baseball player, who's going to employ me if I'm batting 180? <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, one another mantra that I, I talk a lot about is steady wins the race. Uh, and and that's, that, that's part of that is staying steady through all of this, uh, the ups, the downs, you know, all of that and, and recognizing that, you know, the, the best of the best are they learn how to do that. Right. They, they learn how to eventually steady out uh, on the signal, uh, ignore that noise and just focus on that and, and not let too much uh, get in their way. And so it's, you know, watching the Olympics um, um, versus being there, it's fun, you know, to watch these athletes. Last night I was just watching the figure skating and the, is it, is it uh, uh, Chen? Is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was sitting, I was nervous, right? Because it could go wrong uh, for the, for the reasons that we're talking about. There could be some serious noise uh, in there. He had, you know, an enormous challenge uh, ahead of him, given all the pressure uh, that was potentially there, who knows what was going on in his head. Uh, so a lot, there was, you know, a high probability that it was going to go wrong, uh, that he was not going to win, but it didn't. Right. And that's where the high performance comes in. That's where all of those years of preparation and, and being able to do this effectively um, enabled him to to do that. That's no small feat. Now, that that didn't happen in the scheme. For example, we saw 
something go wrong. And it happens, you know, it happens. It's heartless. It's doesn't fit the storyline that you want it to fit. Um, and it's just, it, it can be brutal. Uh, it's a, it's a brutal environment uh, for people, which is why I think coaching and community is so important because it's, it's a load. Yeah. And perspective as well, you know, absolutely. Of, uh, the bigger picture. Um, yeah. Michaela Schifrin, you know, you know mentioned like, I, I don't even know how to handle this because I've never gone through anything like this before in terms of, you know, her first couple of events. And yeah, uh, that's what I would see in college. I, I worked at, uh, uh, as Phil knows, I worked at Arizona state university in uh, sports medicine and counseling services for quite some time. And, a lot of those athletes were always used to being the big duck on the small pond and then they get to college and they're, you know, sometimes a small duck on the big, in the, on the big pond. And they're not used to, you know, losing or going through a losing streak or hitting a wall or, you know, suffering yes. a slump and, and, uh, and that's a big wake up call. And then, and then they, you know, the internal noise is getting too philosophical in terms of am I as good as I thought? Can I really do this? Correct. And, and, yeah. and the best ones are like, yeah, this is where I want to be. I want to be challenged. And Correct. now I'm, yeah. now I'm more driven than ever yes. before. Um, so, uh, you gotta be careful in answering this question because my wife is Portuguese. So, uh, ex- <laughs> so, okay. uh, and Portugal's beautiful place, isn't it? Um, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Have you been to the Azor islands? Those are, gorgeous. I have not been to the Azores, but it's, you know, I've heard enough to know it's well worth the time. Yeah, it, special place, special people. So, uh, compare, I'm just curious, we're kind of going to be switching around here and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, all the, the thread that runs through this is high performance, obviously, but what were the cultural differences, if any, between working with the fit Finnish rowers and then the yeah. Portuguese rowers, and then, uh, rumor has it that the food in Finland isn't as good. <laughs> I've had some <laughs> athletes that have, that have trained there, some winter, winter sport athletes. Uh, and then how about the food in, in Portugal? Yeah. So, um, so I'll address the food first. That's the easy one. The, the food in Portugal is, is incredible, uh, highly diverse. So good. Um, I mean, I'm an Italian American and I probably, I probably shouldn't say it's being recorded, but actually Portuguese food is actually better, uh, than, than Italian food. Um, and the range of it and everything, uh, compared to Finland, Finland, let's say has a less of a range, uh, for sure. Do some things really well. Um, and, and you eat a lot of that. So, um, culturally there's, it's a significant difference, um, culturally, believe it or not, Finland, um, you know, they're very, uh, generally I found them to be incredibly warm, uh, stoic, however, uh, but incredibly warm, but tough. Uh, they are, uh, an athletic culture. Uh, they know how to perform and, uh, they do it differently. They do it quietly. Uh, just, you know, a quick uh, story anecdote. I was in Finland for a number of months before we went to our first World Cup. And I remember getting the boat ready and we were with the athletes and I heard all this noise. Like it was just like like a parade uh, was starting to come in uh, to the arena. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what is going on? And I turned around and it was the U.S. team. Right. And I thought, wow. You know, and I think part of that was I just acclimated to some of the, the quiet and the steady of their culture, which I fully appreciate. Um, they have something called Sisu, which is, uh, you know, this inner toughness, and it's hard to describe, and they say you can't really find the words in English for it, but I've seen it, you know, the, some of the athletes I've coached, uh, I've seen it, that it's toughness. You look at it and you think, wow, like, what's that? Where did that come from? 
from. Uh, it was more than physiology there. Uh, that was just uh, something deeper than that. So, um, so that, you know, part of that culture down to Portugal, Portugal's much more outward, you know, stoic, that that's not how you would describe it. Very emotional, much more emotional uh, in that, in that way, in that regard. Um, so, um, so that, that's some of the difference, not as much of a sporting culture. You know, when I first went into Portugal and met with the Olympic committee down there, um, you know, our goal was to try to go win an Olympic medal. Like that's, that's, it was a pretty high bar for a whole number of reasons, given the status, the status of the rowing federation at the time. But when I went in there, I, I saw that they had one, I forget how many it was on the wall, but somewhere in a range of 20 something medals. I remember walking out and talking, looking at the president saying, I think Michael Phelps has won more medals alone than Bill has. Um, So, which is not the case with Finland, right? Finland, small country, both small countries, but much more of a sporting tradition in terms of uh, Olympic medals. And Portugal didn't have as much of that. Now they're getting that now. And that's, that's certainly not something because of a lack of innate ability. It was just a cultural thing uh, that I, that I started to pick up on and, you know, you have to to work with that. So you have to create some sort of uh, bubbles and cultures within cultures uh, to create the high performance environment that you, you know, you're ultimately after. And we had some advantages uh, for doing that, which, you know, we, we could talk about, but one of which was an international training center that was started there hmm. uh, that um, had a huge impact uh, because we had so much high level competition coming into this uh, place. It was Herdad de Cartesia. It was a Viz Aqua training center uh, in a Viz Portugal. And it was a crossroads of some of the highest performers in the world. Uh, it was incredible around this countryside of Portugal. It was very much community And uh, that was a bit of a a secret weapon for us because we could get our athletes around that, you know, they could compete with it. They could train with it. Uh, And it was one of those things, you know, a lot of these things you can't say, they need to see it. They need to. uh, And so it gave us that opportunity to do that. Yeah. We talked a little bit about cultures as in, you know, the macro picture within a country and within their approach to sport and the mindset and, some of those cultural differences and, and obviously the food as well. But um, within the business world, you know, culture has become such a buzzword that in some ways it's either lost its meaning or it's become, you know, it, it, it could mean almost anything. So what have you learned about the culture um, rather than yeah. a nas- national culture within high-performing yeah. business environments? And obviously there are you know, a, a lot of different roads can lead to Rome on that front, right? But but to you, are, are there any totally. commonalities um, among those who are able to stay in the game long enough to find success and to come back from failure? And just just when I say culture, other than it's sending a shiver down your spine, what 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 springs to mind there? Yeah. So um, so for example, with with Portugal, you know, the um, similar to Finland, they had their own toughness, right? It was. It was in their own way. It was in sort of embedded in terms of how they expressed it. And it just sort of took some time to understand what that was. And as a, you know, uh, uh, an off ramp from the culture talk. And the reason what I mean, the reason I say that is culture in the, for your, the reasons you say it can be relatively vague, uh, relatively vague term, which is why I like to think about it in terms of like a dynamic and, um, this is where 
Um, you know, Jim, from a cognitive perspective, we're thinking about the individual from a social cognitive perspective. Uh, we start thinking about the next level of analysis up, right? We abstract up to the dynamic, which is not the individual or the individuals. It's uh, much more about what's going on between them, right? Literally. Uh, and in starting to understand what that is like. Now, what what I have found uh, to be interesting is that when you start doing that, the, the notion of culture starts to just fade away because a lot of these high-performing teams and high-performing units have very similar dynamics that are uh, not impacted by culture whatsoever. And so, so oftentimes as a coach or leader, uh, whether it be in business, whether it be in sport, uh, I often find that, you know, there aren't many stewards of that dynamic in terms of roles, former formal roles, uh, but leadership uh, is certainly one of those. If there's anyone that's looking out uh, for that dynamic and trying to understand it, it's the leader. And so trying to feel that and understand that dynamic and build towards the dynamic that's necessary for high performance is what I see as, you know, one of the, one of the goals, uh, regardless of the cultures. So that that's one way I tend to not get so uh, distracted uh, by some of those, what, what some might call cultural differences, which, you know, I, I'm not going to get right anyways, um, unless I'm there really, you know, let's face it, you've really got to be immersed uh, for a long time. Uh, in all of it, from language to food to, to all of it, to really start to fully understand uh, that type of culture and how it might impact. Um, but dynamics seems to cut through a lot of that um, and, and get to the performance aspect pretty quickly. And I don't see much of a difference oftentimes between these high-performing uh, environments, whether it be in business, teams, or sport, when you start abstracting up to that that level. Does that make sense? Is that yeah, I think oh, so. D- dive into the dynamics part a little bit and kind of how you're, sure. what we talked about off camera a little bit before we hit record, you know, you and Jim kind of share a, a background in psychology and kind of he he branched off into, into sports and now kind of high performance in all areas, but you went, you know, down that cognitive and behavioral role and how that, that plays into what you just said. So, um, so part of my journey on the academic side uh, was, you know, I got my degree in cognitive psychology, but my first uh, teaching was at the iSchool at Syracuse University, which is School of Information uh, Technology. Now, the iSchools are very eclectic. So what you have there are um, uh, psychologists, you've got the, the pure techies, you've got economists, you've got uh, people in communications, you have all of sociologists, you have all of these different um, perspectives coming together. And it was a pretty unique uh, environment. So that opened me up to all these other layers and levels of analysis, which is what, you know, started to tune me into these dynamics because uh, what I would notice during my doctoral work when I was looking at these high performers is that they would always mention the environment. They would always mention the context, but they would never dive into it, right? They would focus much more on the individuals. And, and it, that's where I started to get much more fascinated about community networks, teams, and that level of abstraction. And, you know, what I, it's, it's very dated, but I, (laughs) for, it's a, it's a, it's a simple cut through, but I'm, I became a big fan of Wyke, Carl Wyke. 
uh, and in the, the highly reliable organizations, which a lot of people just roll their eyes at at this point. Oh, that's really old. Uh, but there's different elements of, of what White saw from a highly reliable organization that apply to high-performing uh, environments. And, you know, the, this notion of a collective mind, which people have experienced. High-performing teams experience it, and they talk about it uh, after, you know, after a great performance. And, you know, w- what are those elements that they're looking for? It's, engagement, recognizing how all the pieces work. It's uh, other things like being subservient to the mind, to the collective, uh, which can oftentimes be hard at a high performing level because you have, let's face it, you get some prima donnas in there that are quite talented and they just can't be subservient to the whole. They can't get out of their own way um, from the performance side and make the entire collective um, better. So that was, you know, that was part of that, that journey where I, I was now able to appreciate the multiple levels where now when you're talking to an athlete or you're talking to someone in an organization, you're, you're talking to the individual, but you're also talking to the dynamic and you're also talking to the community. So as leader, you have to abstract across all those levels. Now, as participants, you don't necessarily need to do that, right? You don't, if you're on the team, the leader, I feel like that's part of your role, your capacity to abstract all the time and recognize that you're talking to the individual and the dynamic at the team sort of level and the community all the time uh, as you're, as you're engaging and as things are changing and you have to kind of understand how it all works and in the best of cases, leverage each of those uh, to get things aligned so that you can perform. Um, Cause you're always looking for ways of trying to get things to align to the point where you can actually perform at that high level. And um, you know, you, you can use all of those to your advantage. So the rowing center, for example, would be an example of the, on the community side of how we can start to leverage that. And there's all these other elements that you can throw in and, and work with when it comes to dynamic and tweaking here and there. And um, so does that answer your, your question? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it, it may, I recently read boys in the boat for probably the fourth or fifth time yeah. and just how, um, you, you know, Pocock described an eight when it was, flowing almost as one organism i think is a great analogy Correct. if no one's read that book and once a, yeah. a, a a lyrical old boat builder you know this master craftsman who comes over and becomes if you know one of the most influential in that sphere um in this narrow domain and he just has some great quotes about that that speak almost directly to what you just said exactly exactly right uh, if i just gave a keynote speech uh, a couple of weeks ago because the the company was using that as a theme uh the the boys in the boat and they wanted me to come in and try to create some connections between the two but um and then an in- another interesting parallel i, I um or connections i coached the um, pocock's grandson at syracuse university oh wow yeah uh, he runs he runs pocock now uh, actually okay but Great guy, tough guy. Yeah, does uh, is he kind of bought into the family lore and the history and? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. They're all yeah. It's um, that's all for real. You know what? What that book is couldn't be 
you know, I think any more truer to, to what was going on there. And this notion of the collective, like people feel that. And, and you can, if you talk to people about their lives, you know what, you can potentially pull out moments in their lives where they have felt that, right. Where they've been part of that eight or part of a collective of some sort. Um, and we're just, they disappeared, right. It was just this whole that was going on, this collective that was going on uh, that they were part of. And they can oftentimes remember it in a very emotional, vivid way, right? Because these, these moments are very hard to come by. Uh, and I think, you know, when you see, you know, these teams, for example, on TV and high-performance sport or even, even startups um, and, or, or companies, it's how do you create that? at the moment it needs to happen, right? Um, which is a very hard um, hard thing to figure out. And it, it takes a lot of time uh, to figure out how to time it all because you can't always be there. You know, you can't have the eight go out and have a day where it's always like that. They'll be drained. By the time the competition comes, they just won't have enough emotional juice left to create that. And so it, it takes time uh, to understand how do we rest? Where do we rest? Where do we back off? When's the time to have fun? Purposefully not go to that state so that when the competition time comes, we can do it. Uh, we'll, we'll have the energy and be ready to do that. And that, it, that's the most interesting part for me is, you know, not only creating the high performance, which is one thing. Uh, but creating the high performance at the right time uh, is is another and really hard problem to solve. And well, it means, means a difference between medals or no medals or, you know, any all those athletes are incredible. They can perform at such similar levels. doesn't matter. It's what's what are they doing on the day? Uh, that's everything. So that timing uh, of it is so important. Well, it's fascinating when you compare the business world to the sports world, because, you know, obviously in the sports world, like let's say coach K at Duke basketball, he's recruiting the exact same player, a five-star, you know, all American with NBA goals, you know, same age. And, uh, you know, you compare that in the business world to this HR grab bag of everyone's a different age. Everyone has, um, you know, men, women, um, and everyone has different goals. Like what is your, is your ultimate goal to, you know, to go up the chain of, you know, the of command yes. is it to transfer to a different, you know, department yes. is it to, you know, so that to me is almost more fascinating. It's, and it's funny as sometimes, you know, I think the sports world could learn more from the business world, but it seems like the business world, cause it's sexy wants to always learn from the sports Correct. world. I think leadership in, in the business world is, is much more challenging in a lot of ways. Absolutely. It's, it's very messy. And I think, you know, with COVID, for example, what COVID did was really pull at that fabric, right? Even more, uh, because it added this whole element in there where you had a lot of noise uh, in, in individuals' heads, rethinking things, thinking about rebalancing and changing and, and what they wanted to do and, and all of that. And, and reacting to that is very, very hard because you're in a continuous you know, state of competition in this marketplace. And so you've got to get that dynamic back together uh, to, to perform uh, even, even within that uh, environment. So it's, 
I think in business, um, oftentimes, what you what can happen, especially with novice leaders, they can, you know, it's all about pushing hard and doing it. And sure, that's an element of it. But man, you've you've got to stay steady more than anything else. And so you've got to recognize when it's just it's not there. Like today's not the day uh, that the team's going to perform. Today's not the day to push it. Today's the day to blow it off, you know, and believe it or not, if you do that, you're going to get better performance. Um, if you don't do that, you could blow it up, you know, completely uh, and really mess things up. And I think uh, that's something that a, a good leader over time uh, starts to learn how to sort of flow with that and keep their own drive uh, and perspective in check at times, uh, given given the reality of the dynamic uh, that's well- yeah, I, I think, you know, and that also relates to 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 human factors versus, you know, analytics in the sense that, um, you know, as for leadership, wanting, you know, wanting to get the maximum production and then short, you know, we're all about short termism. You know, we want we want what we want when we want it, especially as leaders and, you know, in, in the corporate world and, and especially in the sports world. But then on the other hand you know, what's it, the saying in the military humans before hardware that a lot of times, um, you know, the athletes just feel like, you know, my stats are the only thing that coach cares about, or yeah. in the business world, I just feel like a productivity machine. Yeah. And so finding that balance between getting to know your people and then, you know, developing a shared vision and all those things are so important because again, in the sports world, it's kind of obvious that we all want to win, but in the business world, I don't know if there, you know, there's much, broader range of, of goals in terms of, of commitment to excellence. Some are working just to be what, you know, to spend, you know, I can't wait to get home to spend time with my family. Others are like, I'm here to, I want to, I want to be VP one day or president one day or whatever. Yeah. And one, you know, one, exactly. And, um, you know, one of the metaphors that, that's used in rowing, for example, is does it make the boat faster, right? As sort of a, a centering question. I'm a big fan of centering yeah. questions. There's actually a book, isn't there, by a former British yeah. Olympic rower there, there called There is, that? yeah. yeah. Does it make the boat? And, you know, what I like to say is does it make the boat faster on race day, right? And and that's that's a bit of a different question. Love that. That's a bit of a, right? That It matters. That, that on race day part matters uh, because you may not always be looking to make the boat go faster every day, you know, but because you're looking to make it go faster on race day, like not doing that potentially will make the boat go faster on race day, uh, depending on, on feeling those things out. And so, um, you know, you have these, and this is the, you know, the eyes open part, you got to be open to where you are. That's the reality. What are the metrics? Where are we? You know, what's the clock saying? What's the market saying? Where are we? Don't be afraid uh, to put that in front of people, uh, you, you have to be uh, honest and the, you know, no, no BS. Like, what is that? Um, but, but that's not the end because uh, as heartless as all of that may be, uh, you're dealing with people and uh, there's character, there's dignity, there's all of these aspects to it that are ultimately at risk uh, in these types of environments. They're both there as an advantage, but they're also at risk, right? People are putting themselves at a very deep level at risk at times. And you're asking them to do that, right? You're asking them to go all in. Um, well, all in is a, is a big risk uh, for the individual. So you've got to balance those off um, quite a bit, you know, like dream with your eyes open, uh, keep your, keep your feet on the ground, 
move forward and 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 work through that. I I don't think you can do that well. Anybody can do that well as an individual. I think you need a collective uh, around you. The best of them um, need a collective, whether it's as direct or indirect, it doesn't matter. Um, but they they everyone needs help uh, to perform uh, in those types of environments. Yeah, for sure. What traits in a leader can help somebody to go all in for the good of the collective? So you mean, what can the leader do to get someone to go all in? Yeah. Or which, you know, which values, which principles, which tenets can they double down on sometimes? And obviously again, a lot of, or to put it another way, among all the leaders that you've observed, what are some commonalities that maybe, you know, we can draw a red thread through successful leaders in some ways? I think, um, so one, one, one way I, I've, I framed it recently is, um, because politics has become such a big deal and politicians and, and, you know, people are looking for leadership from politicians. And what I like to say is those are not necessarily the same things. You know, the leaders I've seen in high performing environments are the worst of politicians, right? Mm-hmm. Very straight. Uh, they appreciate metrics. They appreciate where things need to go. They recognize that. They're also really good with people, right? They also understand the, all the things I just talked about in terms of, of balancing these things off. And, and I think uh, those are some of the common, that's one of the common traits I've seen is that they um, are able to, you know, keep everybody honest in terms of what they're doing. And they're keeping everyone honest because competition is honest. And they know what they're preparing everyone for. So they're not letting them, you know, dream at night. Uh, they are purposefully opening their eyes to what's, what's ahead of them. Uh, and oftentimes the best of them, uh, what I say, you know, you call the real deals, are straight shooters. Uh, they can really cut through the noise uh, and, and get to the signal. And I think that's a, it's a defining characteristic of, uh, really good coaches and leaders. They're just very good at that. And um, yeah. some people react immediately to that. There are some high performers, for example, that are just ready to take that on and are hyper-motivated by that. Others are a little more timid. They're just not quite ready for that much honesty. And they need to be coached along uh, to, to coached up, really, into that sort of mindset of being able to not change, I want to say change who they are, right? Um, but figure out how to perform uh, with, within that type of environment. So that, that's something pretty I've seen as a thread, regardless of context, you know, regardless of context. Yeah, I think that uh, it's been described as the wimp factor when you when you have to have those tough conversations or be direct, you know, you you got to have that courage to do it. So you need to know what to do. Like you said, you need to be good at it to, to, you know, have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. But then the courage to actually have those hard conversations. Yeah, you you have you have to do it. And it's you know, it's I I tell sometimes I tell the students this, especially when it comes to Super Bowl time. Right. Because we're coming up on Super Bowl. Listen to what they're saying and listen to what percentage of the talk is about neck up and what percentage is about neck down. Mm-hmm. A majority of the performance 
that they're commenting on is neck up. That is what's what's happening here. Uh, these are these are individuals and a collective and a community. Like all of this stuff is there, uh, and that's the reason why people are going to perform or not perform. That's and and that's that's where people tune. That's what people tune into, right? You can you can see it, you can feel it, um, and that's the environment. So, like I said, it's it's heartless. It's a heartless environment because the the, the context doesn't care. The marketplace doesn't care. If you launch a product, there's no no one looking out for your story. It's a great story, and yeah, but no one wants it. Like it's just there's no need for it, and the marketplace is going to buy it. So it's not going to work. Um, that's a heartless aspect to it. Competition's heartless. Who has the better story on Sunday? I mean, pick your athlete uh, on that field. Incredible stories, but there's going to be some heartbreakers. I mean, someone's going to win and someone's going to lose uh, based on the, the performance of the teams. So that part's heartless, but people are not. <laughs> and so you have people engaged in this relatively heartless environment uh, and you're, you're, you know, preparing them at the same time, making sure that they're okay um, as, as leader and coach, that everyone's okay uh, as, they, as they move through this and, and hopefully better than okay, right? Hopefully they're growing into this environment and the environment and the challenge is really getting them to become even more self-aware and more empowered as, as individuals and or a collective. Yeah, sure. What are some neck up tips that you pass along to these budding entrepreneurs um because you know even at i know at syracuse you you were involved in the the startup you know the campus-wide startup contest there's the the sandbox initiative there and like you said you're trying to help them by learning and and how to navigate success and failure and everything in between through doing but um what about that neck up as it applies specifically to entrepreneurship yeah, it's it goes back to the sing, signal and noise aspect of it. It's it's helping them parse all that out because you know what happens, especially in sort of those novice years, everything seems as important as everything else. And you know, one thing when it comes to an entrepreneur, that people think, well, it's about money. You need money. You need resources. Actually, the the most important resource an entrepreneur has, and the most treasured resource they they have, is time. And so the question is, where do you spend your time? What do you focus on? And knowing what to focus on is really hard uh, when you just, everything seems as important as everything else and there's all this noise. I mean, what is it that I need to focus on today? And um, helping them through that process uh, is a big, big part of that. And it takes time. It takes them time to start to, to parse that out. But you know, and it also takes some time to start to recognize, wow, time is my resource. Uh, I need to stop thinking about dollars so much in terms of raising money or all these other constraints that I have. My biggest constraint is 24 hours a day. That's my biggest constraint. And how do I most effectively use those hours to ultimately outlearn competition out there, to get into that marketplace uh, before or more effectively or depending on the business model? How do I do that? And what is the best use of use of time in that in that way? And sometimes what will happen is they'll entrepreneurs will form teams and sometimes prematurely because there's more people than they know what to do with and they don't know how to allocate. So now you not only have your time, but you have this collective amount of time amongst the team, which could be a huge advantage 
but turns into potentially dis, you know, dis, uh, uh, misaligned uh, respect to everything they're doing turns into noise because they don't know how to manage the time of the collective uh, at that point it just becomes that much more complicated for them. So that's a lot of, a lot of the coaching is that and sort of stepping them through the goals and, and getting them in the rhythm of, of being able to do that amongst all this buzzing that's going on around them. Is that, yeah. Say more about that in terms of, you know, the presenting concerns, you know, what, that when executive coach, when coach, when you do your executive coaching work, when executive reach out to you, what are the three or four main things, you know, for, for me as this, you know, sports psychologist, a lot of times it's performance anxiety or, you know, and these yeah. are all interconnected, but performance yeah. anxiety or, you know, how do I get up for the big game or dealing with the major setback? I'm in a big slump, you know, usually Phil and I like to joke, no one calls us when uh, things are going well, <laughs> you know, like, right. Um, and, right. and no one ever says, you know, I need your help keeping things simple. You know, it's, it's usually they're overthinking, they're over trying, they're, you know, they've hit some walls, but yeah, share a little bit more about what are the, you know, the, the, the presenting concerns that usually come, come across your, uh, your desk. I, I think, um, you know, regardless, so, so some of the concerns of the people that, that uh, of leaders that, yeah, that reach out. Yeah. To so, so, you know, what a big one is oftentimes is transition. Um, and it's because what, what they've realized, so they, they haven't thought much about transition. And they've just been doing, right? So some of them are, you know, incredibly good leaders. They manage dynamics. In fact, they're so good, they've done doing everything. And what they've realized is I have not coached up anyone around me. Who do I transition this to? There's so much that I do from the tangibles to intangibles that I have not passed on. And I don't know who else can do that. And, and they, you know, sort of have an oh crap moment. Um, and they, that's why they call. And, and sometimes they'll call and say, well, you know, coach, up, coach these people up around me so that I can, like, no, it doesn't work that way. The reason they're here is because of the culture, sorry to use that word, let's say dynamic, uh, that's been created uh, over the years and that this was never really a priority for you. So you need to, pull them in to that trial and error, failing and, and uh, thing. And oftentimes what will happen is you, you take them back and say, when did you take over the company? And oftentimes they were far from ready, right? It was the fire alarm. Someone passed away or someone I was doing working here and I had to like figure all this up. Okay. You just told me that this individual had worked here for, has worked here for 15 years and they're still not ready to take over this company. Uh, how do you reconcile those two things? Right. Um, so, so you sort of help them, help them through that process. So that's, that's one of the, you know, major concerns. Communication is another one that always makes it to the top of the list. Um, uh, communicating uh, pretty much all the things that, you know, you might imagine uh, within the organization and trying to understand where it breaks down and how it breaks down and, uh, and, and making sure they're communicating the right things. But I would say transition is the one word that a lot of them, I tend to get a lot of calls. Uh, we tend to, you know, to, to get a lot of calls about. Uh, and when you add family business into that, it adds a whole nother layer, right? Of let's say, sometimes it's, I want I want to say noise, but it's really not noise. There's some significant signal in there that needs to be tended to um, 
Uh, and, you know, you might be surprised about what a lot of people in these family businesses really care about. It's, and oftentimes it's less the business and much more about Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's what they care about. So, yeah, know? something so, something else that I think is important that you you brought up there that maybe you could dive a bit deeper into is that we all become so caught up in doing that there's so little time, if any, maybe none, um, for self-reflection, planning, yeah. seeing how how I got to now, thinking about which what the destination was originally and am I on course for that? And if not, <laughs> how do I course yes. correct? How do you get that through to a 19, 20-year-old that's just beginning this this journey and 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 then from a remedial standpoint of that mid-career or late-career professional, he realizes, wow, I've hardly had time to think in 40, 50 years. How do I get here? How yeah, do I, right. you know, how do I transition or how do I put more of my energy now into this trans- this handoff, this relay baton uh, change or this, uh, this e- even now I, I'm going to be less about me and I'm, I want to start getting into mentoring to pour into other people. So two ends of the same question, I guess. But yeah, f- doing versus thinking slash planning slash reflecting. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, people like to use the word passion a lot, which, um, I think is over overused and kind of like culture. It's so vague and I like to use the word purpose and, um, it's kind of sort of, um, knock them off the tracks a little bit with, with a question like that. Cause I haven't thought about that, right? Oftentimes, or they had it once, and then they haven't really uh, solidified that. And and what is it? You know, what what is the purpose? What is your purpose? What's the purpose of this uh, that you're doing? How does it fit in? And how does it align? And really get them to back back off. It really focus. Really takes that lens and like whoop, you know, really expands it out. Uh, same with the younger uh, entrepreneur or uh, the CEO of a, say, mid-sized company that's doing well. Uh, the conversation applies to both often. And, um, you know, they appreciate that because I'm giving them now, I'm also doing some, some blocking, right? Because this is their time where they can do that, right? They can step back. They don't need to be running the company. Uh, or, or doing like this is the purposeful time uh, that they can do that, and they appreciate it. And and you you sort of you start there a little bit, and and start to align some of the things that they're doing uh, with that purpose, and work that muscle a little bit, so that they're thinking about that a lot, uh, and making sure that you know in that spirit of does it make the boat go faster? Uh, is this aligning? Is this part of your purpose? How much of your day is spent on that? Can you get better uh, at spending more time of your day uh, with things that are more aligned uh, with your purpose? Because what can happen with, say, early stage uh, entrepreneurs is, you know, you go through a few cycles. You try to start a business, doesn't work. Try to start a business, doesn't work. And sometimes it's not just the business that doesn't work. The team doesn't work. You get into it and you realize, I really don't care about this problem, (laughs) right? Um, after they they start getting into it, and, they, and that's sort of that misalignment between between that that purpose. Um, and it's the same with the the uh, CEO of the organization. You know what's what's the purpose? And that's that's kind of you know 
I said it in passing, but it's real. The conversations are, I care about Thanksgiving dinner. I want peace at the house. That's my purpose. That's why I started this company for my family, right? For the well-being of my family. And it's in chaos now, right? Um, because of the company, right? So, so how do I rein that back in? And, and I think what that does is it gets them working with a lot more focus uh, at that point. Once you sort of allow them and give them permission to say, it's okay, because you can imagine a CEO of a company saying, well, no, it's Thanksgiving dinner. But that has nothing to do with the business. No, that has everything to do with the business. Yes. That's, and give them permission to go there and, and let them know that, no, this, these are one and the same. Uh, we, we need to talk about both of these things uh, for, it to make, to, for it to make sense. We can't just talk about the mechanics of your business. That that would not lead you down the path that we need to go. If you really want to address this, we need to go deeper than that, you know, in that way. Without getting too psychoanalytical about it, really, you don't need to. You just sort of, like I said, you sort of do some blocking for them and say, take some time to think about this. Yeah, what, what, uh, you just put yourself on the spot here. So <laughs> we're going to ask you, what is your purpose? <laughs> you know, it's funny though, that this, uh, so I'm being interviewed later for uh, uh, Twitter chat. And that is one of the questions. Here are a couple questions we're going to ask you. So that's so funny. You brought that up. I love that question. What is your purpose? Cause they it is a little cheat. different. They let you yeah. cheat Jim. We're putting Mike on the spot. Well, here, but... They didn't give yeah, me all right. the questions. They didn't give me all no, the questions. So no stealing answers either. Well, I, you know what? We'll just we'll just hold off on when we uh, publish this uh, interview with you so, right. until after mine, and then only. That's right. Then. That's right. Then I'll look like I'll look like the one who's still. No, but I love that. And and real quick though, Phil, we interviewed the uh, Stanford women's uh, soccer coach uh, for our book, The Leader's Mind, and he had a great question too. Is like it was kind of like you know with high school, uh, uh, you know, uh, soccer players. He was asking, you know, like how did you get this far? And he was like it was kind of like, what's your purpose, but also how do you look at where you got this far instead of I'm just good. You know, he wanted, you know, get into growth mindset and, and you love learning and growing and you love being challenged and all those. So he's looking for those. So yeah, it was kind of, as you were talking, I was thinking, what is, you know, it's, that's such a great question. What is your purpose? And then also, you know, besides just like, I don't know, you know, would be a red flag, you know, what, what are some other red flags that you might hear from, from, from a leader? Yeah. Do you want to hear? I can. Give oh, you- I just threw a bunch of stuff at the wall. So whatever. Yeah. You wanna- so, I mean, I, you know, for me, it's empowerment is, is part of it. Um, I'm stealing that. Yep. There's a, there's a dignity to it. I think dignity is at the core of it uh, when it comes to people and, and helping that empowerment happen. Right. And again, it goes back to the different levels at the individual level, at the team level where they, feel that empowerment, right? Collectively, they're part of it, right? But they're, so they're not, they're not, it's not a lack of power because you need a team to get there. No, it's the opposite. You feel like, whoa, it's a whole nother level of empowerment uh, that they experience uh, all the way up to a community level uh, where you start getting into identity and, and these types of things. So, so I think that's a, that's a big, a big part of it. Um, the other one is, uh, I'm a, you know, the ripple effect, uh, I, planting seeds. Um, you just don't know, you know, with, 
So for example, with, you know, teaching students or, or going to Finland and then going to Portugal and then, you know, you're, you're having an impact and it, it kind of like the, uh, the, uh, the Kiwis, the black, the all blacks, uh, one of their, one of their lines is, you know, leave the, leave the locker room, um, in you know, better shape than, than when you say that's kind of it. Like, had, did I leave it in a better place? You know, not to keep expectations low, but did I move it in a, in a positive direction? Like, are there seeds planted? Are there, and it, it's not always clear where things will go, but there's this rippling that you can be confident about that this is going to have an impact eventually a bigger impact than, than what we've done here. Sort of, we're all sort of part of this long storyline. So what, what impact that I have on that storyline, you know, that it, did I, did it veer off uh, in a good direction? That was, was that the impact? Was it um, so sort of understanding it in, in that way. So it's sort of those two, the, the empowerment, the, the dignity aspect of it and the, um, the notion of this ripple effect and the impact that you're having it, that that's kind of what brings me peace to say, yeah, we, we did something there. Um, I'm not sure when everyone else is going to realize it. Sometimes you do it and people don't, you know, they don't realize it until something happens. And oftentimes when that happens, you're not even part of the story anymore. Right. And that selfless leadership side of things can be hard, uh, but I have found it to be really effective uh, because you you can get in the way of the storyline just by making sure you are part of the storyline as opposed to just making sure that things are moving in the right direction. Yeah, I love that. Um, recently interviewed a Bobby Sarko played for, for the Lakers for four years during the, the hard years, the losing years, right, where Kobe was injured and they were drafting all these young guys who everyone said were busts and now it's like Brandon Ingram, you know, Jordan Clarkson was sixth man of the year, Julius Randle was an all-star, so just shows the lack of patience, which we see, of course, in business as well. Um, the exactly. lack of being able to do it. But when, when he went to play in... Japan, Bobby said he got a tattoo out of that, and it says water the bamboo. And I guess with bamboo, you have to water it every day, and for three years, you see no growth. And then suddenly, over three or four months, it just shoots up into this really tall thing. So I, lo- I love that water the bamboo is basically another way of, you know, and whatever the Japanese probably have a great turn of phrase for it. Or maybe it's just one word as they, <laughs> they tend yeah, to do right. sometimes, but, uh, essentially what you're saying is is plant the bamboo seed water the bamboo and then eventually it's going to shoot up whether or not you're around to witness that or not yeah exactly and you know it, it's something it's you you have to make a choice if what matters is it the the newspaper article or is it planting that seed and making you know having the bamboo grow right and being at peace with that. And, and even if someone else gets the newspaper article and you're not part of all of that aspect, are you going to care? Are you going to truly care about it? Oftentimes I, I don't I'm like, you know, people, who knows the real story, who knows it all, the people that were really there. And, and those we've had that we have, we share that common purpose with each other. That's incredibly meaningful. That's not a big crowd. That's oftentimes a real small crowd. Um, that is, that is part of that. And that's enough. That's okay. Along those lines, how would you 
explain, you know, how would, you know, in terms of metrics, um, you know, if, if someone higher up in a company was hiring you and said, how do we know you're helping or not? <laughs> yeah. So, right. How would so you answer what, that question? Yeah. So, um, so it's not just what happens when you're there, but also what happens after. So for example, Syracuse university, we, we started this, this startup, uh, information technology design and startups thing. And it was outside the business school purposefully. And there's all this strategy, uh, with doing it all geared towards empowering these students that you're looking at saying, Oh my goodness, they're, they're just on a one way road to hell. Like they are not, (laughs) you know, these are entrepreneurs. They're good. They want to blaze their own trail. Um, And, and so we, we started the program specifically for those types of students and um, that took time. So where is that now? Well, it's North of $500 million of dollars raised or earned by companies that these students started. One of them just, just crested a billion dollar valuation. You know, I, I still remember the first day in class with these students and where they, where they were in that process. And I just had breakfast with someone who we sort of called ourselves the chief instigators uh, of a lot of this, you know, and we were saying, we did that, you know, we, that doesn't happen uh, without our element. Now, did we create the success of that company in the end? No, there's all of these elements that came into it, but the environment, the context, the culture, the community, like all of that was a lot of what we took time to build. Uh, and it, it just took time. So, you know, it ultimately, even for example, in high performance sport, depending on where you're starting, even with some of these pro teams, the pressure on these uh, coaches in these organizations, they don't take a longer term uh, focus on the payoff. They don't get it. I mean, it can take years. Uh, and so, for example, on an Olympic level, when I went into Portugal this past run, I said, given where we started, this is going to take eight to 12 years to get to a medal level. Like, it's going to take that long. And It's a longer it's stalk gonna... of bamboo that lays dormant for longer. What's right. that? It, the bamboo t- stalk will take a bit longer to shoot. Correct. It's, and it's, it's, there's no other way around it. So... If you want the outcome, you can try to shortcut it, but it's not going to happen. You can try to shortcut it again. You can try to shortcut it again. Or you can raise the probability of it happening tremendously by taking the longer view and doing it right. Because it's probably the only way, the only chance you have uh, is is to do that. The risk is higher. All of that is higher. But the probability of success is also higher. And so... Getting people to take that, that's why steady wins the race is something I say often. It, you just, you got to stay steady. Water the bamboo. I love that um, metaphor. That That's it. Um, so so I think that's that's a big part of it. What's the time frame of this? And I see this with, um, I'm getting more interested on ownership of organizations, of these sporting organizations specifically. Because you see these organizations losing and losing. It's like, it's not the coach's fault. Something's just seriously wrong with that organization. And as you get to it, you just got to keep going up and up and up because at some point the buck does stop uh, at the top. Something's not right. Uh, They're not winning for a specific or a number of specific reasons. And it is probably not all the reasons that the papers are writing about. And it is probably not all the reasons that the organization is trying to 
put the blame on for. No, it's at the top. I mean, come on. You just went through five different coaches. You just went through 300 different players. You just went through, you know, how many variables. There's only one constant variable through this entire scenario here. Uh, and that oftentimes is at the top of these organizations. And some organizations are just, they get it. They know how to win. They know how to pull coaches in that might make them feel a little uncomfortable and might not align. But they know they're, they're going to win. Like the, they get it. They see that and they're able to negotiate that. That goes the same for organizations as well. As you bring in this diversity of talent, you need to be comfortable with people that make you uncomfortable. Uh, because oftentimes that's where those performers are. They're, they're making you uncomfortable because of who they are and what they do. And you absolutely want that, uh, want them on your side uh, as you're going out into the marketplace. So you need to, to be able to, to manage that. So I think, you know, uh, it, how you set the stage for that uh, is important. And um, being patient as the, the top person and making sure that the pressure that people are putting on themselves is, if it's internal, great. That's a great place to put it. But when you're driving the pressure down on something, saying we're going to, we need to win in three years from, you know, we're at the bottom and we're going to win in three years. Oh, you're not. It's not going to happen. <laughs> you yeah, the rebuild. To- I mean, if you look at, say, totally the balls between the Jordan era and the Derek Rose, Luol Deng era, that was a long time, or even Manchester United. Sir Alex Ferguson leaves and look at what has happened to them since. Um, that's a really long time <laughs> since yes. that Ryan Giggs Beckham kind of super yes. team. Exactly. And, you know, look, competition's too honest. It, all the pieces need to be there or you're not going to win. So you've really got to be methodical about moving and setting the environment for that patience and steadiness. I think the same goes for companies too. And uh, if you do that well, then you can, you know, get the noise out of there, which is terms of we're not there yet. Oh my goodness. You know, we're not good enough. That's noise. If you're, if you're taking a that's not what we're looking at. Look at where we were last year. Look at where we are now. Like everything's working. We're, we're moving in the trajectory that we want to be on. That's what we need to stay focused on. Yeah. How, how do you get things going as predicted? How do you get these young people that are brought up in a culture of immediacy, even with the social media that tools that they, you know, they, they sometimes come to define their value or lack thereof based on the number of likes, dislikes, retweets, et cetera. Yeah. Um, it, it's microwave or drive-through culture. You know, there are probably those that thought this is already insane that you can drive up to this window and get your food in three minutes and get the heck out of here. Or you can put, you know, for, for yeah. our, our great grandparents that you can put your food in this little metal box and a minute later it'll be hot or your cold water will be hot or whatever. And now we add in all the, you know, in quotes, innovations, which in some ways have, have set us back in terms of our ability to be patient and endure the long yeah. haul. So how do you try to imbue this sense of patience and steadiness in young people who have been conditioned and who have never known anything else other than drive through microwave and social media uh, yeah. impatience? I think there's, I think there's two, two levels to that question where you, you know, you as, as teacher or coach, 
I think it goes back to the doing part. I think there needs to be a visceral element to this where they're, they're recognizing and you know, you're doing it, for example, like when they come back and say, this is really hard. Yes. Right. And because I could have said this is hard and I probably did months or last year, but now you're coming back and you're saying, this is really hard. Yes. This is not something that a lot of people can do. And what I mean by that is not don't have the ability. It's they don't have the fortitude or the character or the steadiness to do what's necessary to do this. Um, that's the challenge, right? And so, um, so that's part of that coaching, which is why, you know, getting them out on the, on the sort of metaphorical field is so important because you need that, they need to have that context and appreciation for what it is that they're really doing uh, and what they're really up against uh, specifically. You know, for example, with entrepreneurship, one of the, the facts I, I tell the younger uh, entrepreneurs all the time, I ask them what decade of one's life, what decade of life do you think the most successful entrepreneurs come from? And what do you think that answer is? Curious. Oh, goodness. This is so... <laughs> You're on the spot, Phil. Yeah, it's difficult because, you know, the founder myth or the startup myth skews this young, right? About Or Zuckerberg's Correct. comments about exactly. how, how exactly. young pe- young people are just smarter. I don't exactly. know. I'll, I'll say 40s and be wrong. I'll say no, 50s. You're, you're, yeah, exactly. You're both, it's, it's 50s. Decade of the 50s, that's, that's where the most successful entrepreneurs sit for obvious reasons. You're going to have to be patient. Phil's only 40, so he's going to have to be yeah. really patient. <laughs> Darn it. I only said that because I was hoping it was now. You, you, you're hoping it was today. But. No, but that for the, for the, you know, for the reasons that you're, you know, you're thinking that that's it, you know, because that's, it's a, it's a hyper competitive environment. You need every advantage that you can get. The 20 year old is basically on the race course with the 50 year old. And that 50 year old has resources and networks and lessons and adulthood, you know, in the, in the grandest of terms. And, you know, they, they have all of that advantage um, that the, the younger entrepreneur doesn't have. And I, so that's, that's sort of, again, opening their eyes to, to the challenge is, is oftentimes the first step in the process because then, then the next step is, are you coachable? Can you be coached through this? And, and what is coachable? And um, that's a lot of give and take as well, as you, you might imagine. It's like, you know what? We, we said it, they're not going to do it. We helped them, let them go and they're going to fail. And, and that's okay. Like we're here. We're protecting them from all that, you know, um, but that's, that's the path that's, it has to happen. They just got to do this. Um, so, okay, that's, that's fine. Others are just coachable. They're like, okay, you know what, that makes complete sense to us. We're going to try it that way. And then they do it. So it really depends on the, the student uh, that you're, that you're working with. Um, the reason I said it was two things the, the other thing that comes to mind is how do you manage a dynamic? Uh, in that scenario. And I think, um, you know, when you're managing a high-performing team or a company, I think the ultimate decisions that, that leaders need to make, or let's say one of the ultimate decisions that leaders need to make is, is this a, a transformational moment or a transactional moment? Do I need to just change the individual or can, is it worth the transforming the individual? Like what, 
where are we with this? And as I said, you're, you're dealing at the individual dynamic and um, community level. That decision has an impact on that culture, right? If you get too transactional, that means you're creating a transactional culture, which is could be okay if that's what you want, but you need to understand that's what you've just created by that action, as opposed to trying to support and be more transformational. Um, you've chosen this other thing, which may help on a performance side, specifically shorter term, but longer term, you may have shot yourself in the foot if that's not what you're after, if that's not what you're after. And, and sometimes leaders will purposefully be transactional to wake people up, get people's attention. Um, so they'll sort of moderate that. And, and I think you, that's, it's always, those are hard decisions um, to make at times because it's so multi-layered in terms of the abstraction, you know, of, of how you're impacting all these different levels uh, of the company and the team and the individuals. That is well said, sir. Jim, any thoughts there that kind of bubble up with, with your experience in trying to, trying to help high performers in a different arena over the years kind of play the long game and, you know, navigate that transformational versus transactional and stay the course? Well, yeah, I love the saying that, uh, you know, long-term success is always more important than short-term success. And, you know, I think if we try to force short-term success, then we do a lot of gimmicky things and then people just get really cynical and, um, and, um, and, and it usually backfires. So uh, I love what you guys are talking about in terms of watering the bamboo. And, and like Phil said, there, what's the, there's that Zen story about there's a certain type of bamboo where you water it, nothing happens, you water it, nothing happens. And then 10 years later, it shoots up 10 feet. And so um, success sometimes is happening below the surface when you can't see it. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. I think, an important part of this. Given that the Winter Olympics are going on and we're trying to make you give away the whole farm here with all of your great wisdom and <laughs> advice and, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and, 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 uh, and, uh, insight. So, uh, what, if you were to speak to uh, a team and I know this wouldn't be ideal because you'd want to build the relationship, get a lay of the land, sure. do, you know, get the Intel, you know, sure. it's interesting too, with different teams. When I was with the giants, it wasn't, uh, you know, Bruce Bochy is, you know, strong figure, um, kind of stoic figure, the manager and they win three, three world series in five years. And he only gave, you know, in baseball, it's so interesting. He gave a talk to the whole team uh, during uh, spring training. Then he would give a talk to the whole team at, you know, 80 games, 81 games into the season at, at the all-star break around there. And then at the end of the season, you know, as the playoffs were starting, whereas, you know, coaches and leaders in other sports, every single day they're giving team talks. So sure. it's really fascinating. So a lot of the leadership in the baseball world is is within the team. Um, so it, it's really fascinating. But And then according, you know, kind but of – I wouldn't underestimate how in touch well, the good manager is with that, right? Well, that's exactly it's right. It's okay. Everything's okay. I don't need to give the talk. It's that's, okay. it. that's exactly right. Helping yeah. isn't always helpful. And so right. – he gave the message to them that, you know, you're pro guys. I trust you. I believe in you. Um, and when you need the help, like you said, we're here for you. Um, and he, you know, but, um, uh, and, and then it's interesting too. He talked about, you know, Buster Posey is a living embodiment of slow and steady wins the race where, you know, future hall of famer, his, his mantra is stay the course. And, uh, you know, cause people panic when you lose a couple games and and then, People are, you know, heads in the clouds when you win a couple of games. So he's like, you know, stay the course, stay the course. Um, 
But yeah, say a little bit more about if you were to present to, you know, a, a Winter Olympic team since the Winter Olympics are going on right now. What would be, you know, maybe two or three uh, keys that you might, you know, they could be reminders, but two or three keys, like when you go in there, and I love your idea about signal noise, we talk about that, you know, and I love the acronym, what's important now, what do you, you know, at each moment, what's important now, what's yeah. not important now, and then, and then whatever happens, what's important next. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. just curious about some of your favorite things that pop to mind that you might share with the, with the Olympic team. I think, it, I think it's, um, you know, there's an enormous amount of um, external pressure that has come into even the Olympic sports, right? Um, probably because of money, eyeballs, you know, all, all of all of that. Um, trying to give, I, I think a lot of it would be to be the voice of um, play and fun um, because you're going to have that impact. I, I don't need to tell those athletes to perform. I don't need to motivate them to perform, right? That's, that's not it. In fact, that motivation cross reference with all that other stuff is what's, you know, turning this uh, eustress into distress uh, and, and potentially getting in the way of their performance. I would tr- probably try to center them back to having fun, the, the, go out there and just do what you love to do. This is, this is the moment, right? And it's not the moment of performance. It's the moment of experience. Like you're going to have a chance to go out there and experience this uh, in the moment that you've been working towards. Whatever the outcome is, put yourself in a position where you can perform the best. And that's, I think that would be a lot of, I would really try to steady them out uh, a bit, probably with the expectation that I'd be um, not having to pump them up, that it would be steadying them down and, and just really doing the, w- what we can to get them to enjoy this. And that's potentially enough. It's okay. Right. And some people might say counterintuitive. Well, it's not about fun. They need to perform it. No, you know, that's, that's not it. They, they will perform. They, they've been practiced. They have all of that. They need to be in the moment and need to be at that state of relaxation uh, where there is that eustress and it's, but it's a healthy amount, right? They're in the center of that curve. And, and that's where you want to want to get them. That's, that's probably where I'd be spending a lot of it. The other thing is that what people don't see here, I can already, um, cause I was in Tokyo and um, you can see it in China. I, I, the facilities aren't all the, the best. So my hunch is the conditions aren't the greatest either. And um, trying to make sure that that's not becoming a distraction to them. Uh, and if you have to do some, uh, you know, a lot of work to, to, again, sort of do the blocking to make sure that they can just perform, then you do that. You know, like literally logistics or whatever is required uh, to do that um, just so that they can understand and, and just not let that become noise. You know, you're right. The snow isn't perfect. And yeah, there's nuclear reactors like right behind you and you're in the middle of the, you know, uh, environment, like this isn't what you envisioned maybe, uh, when you were here and there's, you know, there's not snow everywhere. There's only snow and you're like, there's different things that aren't quite, uh, to your expectation, but look, here's what is here. Here's what we do know. Here's what, you know, uh, let's, let's just stay focused on all that. So I, 
Um, that would maybe be, again, I'm just reading from not knowing for sure, but just sort of watching from the outside and having experienced a little bit in Tokyo through COVID that there were certain parts of it that just weren't the typical Olympic experience from what I understand. And the uh, same thing is probably going on in, in China, not to mention the cultural things, you know, of, yeah. you know, all the things there of how they do it, uh, what, what they mean about being on time, what they mean about, you know, reliability, what they mean about food and, and the quality of the food and, and all those different things that can really become distractions. Just again, coming back to just have fun with it. Like it's different, you know, let's have fun with this, but you're still going to go out. You know what to do. If that yeah. makes sense, you know, that's probably, that's my hunch, just sort of an intuitive response to that. That's probably where I'd be doing my best. What would I be doing internally? Probably freaking out, <laughs> you know? being nervous, distressed, you know, all of that other stuff, but recognizing that that's not my role. I can't, I can't live there and I can't convey that either. I've got to, you know, make sure that things are cool and calm and, and steady here. Oh, as a leader or as, as, as a, a leader, participant. Yeah, yeah, as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. I want to perform, right? I want the team to perform. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to perform too. So yeah. it's, you know, it, it, you're certainly looking out for the athlete, um, uh, above yourself. It's their experience really ultimately. Um, but you want to perform, you know, as you want to make sure there's an outcome here uh, in, in this. And so you're, but you're not letting that cloud cloud that it, it's, you know, it's multiple brains at work. Your brain isn't the one that's on your brain is the one that's really working to, to balance the, the dynamic uh, at play there. Yeah, at that point, a lot of it is do no harm as a leader, as a coach. Uh, right. Uh, that's the number one source of stress Olympians report after the games and surveys, uh, private surveys, you know, in terms of, you know, the sports I cut. Yeah, it's, it's family and coaches are the biggest stressors. And it all comes from obviously good plays. You know, we're sure. trying so hard to be helpful, but then they end up, you know, their own anxiety, their own fears uh, and, and distracted people. Uh, uh, distract people. <laughs> and so exactly. Uh, and, and so uh, the Olympic athletes just need to be freed up from that. But I love what you're saying too, is you're not there. Uh, you're not there for comfort. You're there for performance, but try to be as comfortable as you can. And then for the performance, you're always do better when you have fun. And so it's fun exactly. with the purpose. So you're going to perform better if you're there, right? They're going to perform better if they're there, if they're in that state and um, state of mind. And so it's, you know, ultimately for the sake of performance, you're doing it to not to make it easier for them or anything. You're doing it to help them that you want them to perform. And you know, they want to perform at the end. They want to look back and say, I perform. And um, so, so that, that's, that would be your, like I said, I'd probably be spending a lot of time um, doing that. A lot of self regulation first, making sure I'm in the right spot Um and then picking and choosing those moments of, of how and what to communicate based on the environment, probably um, being hyper aware of all the things going on and trying to just, you know, block where I needed to block, get them focused where they needed to get focused, um, yeah. do, whatever, you know, whatever holes I need. It was, it was, we were watching figure skating last night and my, um, one of the coaches had, he had all the tags on, uh, like all the uh, credentials and he had like five credentials. He had backpack, he had like coats, he had all the stuff and he was sitting there next to him. My wife's like, why is he he's carrying all that stuff? I'm like, 
Yeah. That's what he's doing. Like he's just trying to eliminate the noise from everybody else. Yeah. Take care of it all. That's, that's what he's doing. He looks incredibly uncomfortable and overburdened by all this stuff, but that's what he needs to do at that time to make sure that no one else is, you know? That's it. Yeah, it is interesting the difference between, you know, as we mentioned, the sports world versus the business world, where I think a lot of the pressure in the sports world is these peak, you know, these peak peak stressors of, you know, the, the games or the Super Bowl, whereas in the business world, it's just this volume of just, you know, 80-hour weeks or 60-hour weeks, and it's just this ongoing grind. So it is interesting the difference in terms of where the pressure is coming from and the yeah, importance I- of... Yeah, rest and recovery and, and, and mindset and nutrition and everything comes into play for, for both purposes. But Yeah, and that, that's why, I like, you know, one reason I've, I've posed, you know, doesn't make the boat faster on race day, even in business environments, because the first question people ask is, what's race day? Right? Yes. What exactly. is race day? Every day isn't race day. So, so what is race day? You know, and it, it gets them thinking about sort of these cycles and get them thinking about the fact that you're not always going to be performing at the highest levels here. So what are those milestones that we're after? What, what is race day, right? It forces that that conversation. That's a really good question to ask. Yeah. Um, one last question before we let you go. You've been very generous with your time and we, we're not yeah, on been great. hour and a half. Like I Thank said, you. we're, we're kin, man. We yeah. Are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what was something when you first took the position at Syracuse, what was something about entrepreneurship that you had in your head as an almost gospel truth that you since have had to maybe amend the stone tablets a little bit? Oh, interesting. Um, um, yeah. So I think, I think the, the, the part that I've, adapted to over time because part of it was you know pulling people in to it other creating a a team of coaches and and creating the environment is um not um being the reason that it exists right you're building a community and not being the reason they want to start a company um it needs to be a self selected thing. So our limit is um, presenting the choice and the opportunity. And most of them don't, a lot of students don't know they exist. Like they haven't asked that question. They've, they're going to college. A lot of students want to get a degree and get a job at a company that exists. They haven't asked the question, where do companies come from? They haven't even thought of that, right? And so you're opening them up to this world of individuals, communities, like all the things we're talking about, really these sort of performers in this different world. Uh, They're different people solving different problems. Um, And so all we're doing is just opening that up as an option and being crystal clear. I guess one of the, the things is being, you know, crystal clear that knowing this isn't for you is just a good out as an outcome as knowing it is for you, right? That is okay. And we would be much more outwardly about giving students permission, you know, being clear that when we mean it, 
Like if this isn't for you, it's okay. This is not for everybody. Uh, in the same way, other things aren't for everybody. Our our job here is just to introduce it to you, you know. And you need to self-select into this. We are not here to motivate you to be an entrepreneur. That that I think would be derelict of duty. Um, given where they are, you know, given sort of the fuzziness of what they want to do and all that other stuff and the influence that people can have on them and everything else that really being careful about that, uh, about, about all of that. And so that, that's, that's probably one of it. One of those things, again, it's probably goes back to that purpose that being more focused, even more focused on getting them to think about what their purpose is. And that, you know, as they're trying out entrepreneurship and trying out all their other classes and other, like be self-reflective. That's what this is. That's what this is ultimately about. You know, what get used to that, work that muscle. Well, that's a, yeah, a really great thought to end on. I think, well, thank you again so much, not just for your time and insight, but your thoughtfulness as well. And, uh, Hopefully this is a fun experience and uh, this is great. we can yeah, eventually run, run it back for a part two because I know Jim's uh, got a lot of questions we probably didn't get to and I do too. But um, yeah, I really do appreciate your, you spending part of your afternoon with us. Sure, I appreciate it. I was looking forward to it. It was great. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.